Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? The other day I was driving up in my neighborhood up in the mountains, and as I was driving, I saw what I thought was a rather large dog, only to realize it wasn't a dog at all, but it was a bear going from one neighbor's house to another, looking for food, looking for water, looking for Krispy Kreme donuts, <laughs> anything it could get its hands on. This is the time of year where up in our neighborhoods they warn us of bears. One was seen at my neighbor's house just yesterday, and so the email goes out, be careful, the bear is large and it's looking for food. It's always interesting when the animal kingdom tries to mingle with the kingdom of human beings. It doesn't work. They don't have the same nature that we have. Now one day they will. One day there will be a unity between the wild animals of nature and the wild human beings of nature. Isaiah 11 predicts the day, the prophecy, when the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and a little child shall lead them. There's coming a day when there will be absolute unity, even in the physical universe, the kind of unity that only exists now in circuses where there is training under very special, careful operation. There's another unity that the Bible speaks about. There's a spiritual unity among God's people. We're going to look at it in Ephesians 3, but we're also going to consider it tonight among ourselves. That's why there's these elements for communion. We celebrate the ultimate unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to look at, well, several verses. Let's just read it together and then we'll pray. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I write, wrote before in a few words, by which when you read, you may understand by my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus." to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. According to the eternal purpose by which he accomplished in Christ 
Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, I'm going to read to you. Don't look at your Bibles. Just listen. Close your eyes, in fact. I'm going to read the first seven verses in a very modern translation. This is the New Living Translation. And it just sort of sets the tone. It's sometimes difficult to understand Paul at all, let alone even in the New King James, which is a modern version. But uh, this is sort of one that takes maybe a little too much liberty in certain places, but I think it's good here. I, Paul, am a prisoner of Jesus Christ because of my preaching to you Gentiles. As you already know, God has given me the special ministry of announcing his favor to you Gentiles. As I briefly mentioned earlier in this letter, God himself revealed his secret plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand what I know about this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now he has revealed it by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is the secret plan. The Gentiles have an equal share with the Jews in all the riches inherited by God's children. Both groups have believed the good news, and both are part of the same body and enjoy together the promise of blessings through Christ Jesus. By God's special favor and mighty power, I have been given the wonderful privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Years ago, there was a song that was number one on the charts. I was eight years old when it was number one. Tells you how long ago it was. The lyrics went, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Closer. Let me whisper in your ear, say the words you long to hear. I'm in love with you. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> Paul basically says, do you want to know a secret? The word he uses is the word mystery. He's about to tell us a mystery, a secret. The word he chose is an interesting word in the Greek language. It sounds very similar to our word. It's mysterion. But when you hear the word mystery, you might think of Agatha Christie, or you might think of some television tale, mystery theater. And that's not really the meaning of it. The word mysterion was a familiar word to the Ephesians and to the ancient peoples, but he used it in a very unfamiliar way. You see, there were mystery religions, and there were secrets that were passed on by the hierarchy to those who were initiated the adherents of these mystery religions. They were secrets that only a few knew and kept to themselves, told no one. But Paul uses it in this way. Here is a secret, a mystery, a truth that has never been revealed in the Old Testament, not a prophet, not an apostle, not anyone of God's special people in the old days knew anything about this, but now it is revealed. 
This mystery is to be broadcast everywhere. And here it is. The mystery is you. Us. We are the mystery. The church. With all of the different backgrounds we possess, all of the different oddities we have, all of the baggage we come to the table with, all saved by the same grace, put in one large group called the church. More specifically, in verse 6, Paul says the musterion, the mystery, is the fact that Jew, God's chosen people, and Gentile, all the rest, according to the Jews, can be saved, and when they are, there is no racial distinction. We're all placed in the same pot. You're the mystery. It's a mystery that God can get us all together, but he has. And so we might rephrase the song, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise that you'll tell? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, let me whisper in your ear, say the words you long to hear, he's in love with you. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> we are the mystery, the church, different backgrounds, all together in the same body. Or as he says here, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, verse 6, of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery. Having said that, for a moment, empty your mind of your progressive Western American modern thinking. This was revolutionary concept 2,000 years ago. And principles still are revolutionary. But 2,000 years ago, it was a foreign concept, this idea that you can get at the same level, at the same level before God, Jew and Gentile. And who do you think it was that had the hardest time with this thinking? Jews or Gentiles? The Jews did. And the Jews did because, after all, they knew the promises of the Old Testament, but they became very exclusive with them. Let me explain. In Deuteronomy 7, that very famous passage where God says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special people, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Well, <laughs> you hear that and you might think, Oh, so I'm the only one God loves because I'm special above all the rest on the earth. Now, in a sense, there was truth to what they were thinking. That is, if you wanted to come to God back then, back in those days, you had to go through Judaism, through the sacrifices. Those are the things God required. But, what happened is this group of people, this special group, this special treasure, became separatist in their thinking instead of integrating into the world. Yeah, they were special. Oh, yeah, they were a cut above, in a sense, all the other nations, but for a reason. The reason was found in the prophet Isaiah, a couple chapters, 49, 41. God says, I've raised you up to be a light to the Gentiles. A light to the Gentiles. Well, they, they forgot all about that. They became a light to themselves. They became ingrown. And they forgot that God loved other people. They forgot the promise to their ancient father, Abraham. 
who said, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Oh, they forgot about that part. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he starts introducing this thought back into the disciples' thinking with familiar phrases like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. The world? God loves the world? And whoever can come to him? Yep. That was revolutionary. It wasn't whoever in their thinking, it was just us, the Jews. Jesus explained it a little more to his own disciples in John chapter 10. He said in the Good Shepherd passage, you know it well, I'm the Good Shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. He said, other sheep do I have that are not of this flock. Them also I must bring, that there may be one flock and one shepherd. Well, that's great. <laughs> But it took a while to register, and it didn't go over very well, even with Peter, even with this great disciple who heard all these words. And you know the story about he was at Simon Tanner's house. He saw a sheet let down from heaven, all sorts of unkosher bugs and stuff on it, and God said, eat it. Rise and eat. And he goes, no way, Lord, I've never eaten anything unkosher. God said, what I have cleansed, let no man call unclean. And he gets the idea, he gets the message, it finally seeps in. Oh, he's talking about people. He's saying that when God cleanses people, be they Jew or Gentile, I have no right to say they are unclean. So what does he do? He follows the vision, goes to a Gentile's house, preaches the gospel to him. Cornelius receives the gospel, and he understands the lesson. But his buddies don't. That's right. The church in Jerusalem, as soon as he gets back home, comes to him and says, You went in to the house of the uncircumcised and you ate with them. Peter said, Yeah. And? He said, And you can't do that. You're Jewish. There's a distinction. Special people, special treasure above everybody else. You broke the law. So it didn't go over very well. Then in Acts chapter 15, they struggled again, didn't they? Because even in the church, people were saying, you better tell those Gentiles, unless you're circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Well, that's the background. That's, that's the history. The idea is this is a mystery. What, what would a group of Gentiles want with a Jewish Messiah? And what would a Jewish Messiah want with a bunch of Gentiles? Now that's the change. That's the revolution that's happening here. So, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. For you Gentiles. By the way, can I just uh, give you a little bit of secret that, that might help whenever you read any of Paul's writings? You know, sometimes we read Paul's writings and we go, Okay, we're going to go down to the period, and then we go, what? Huh? Paul was brilliant. Paul was an incredibly deep thinker, much deeper than I could ever hope to be. So much so that Peter even acknowledged that when Paul writes things, a lot of them are hard to understand. One of the reasons is that Paul starts with a premise stops midway in the sentence, gives a huge parenthetical statement to qualify it, and then picks up the thought. In this case, he does it in verse 1. I just want you to notice that. 
because this is not untypical for Paul. He starts the thought, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. That's where the thought ends. Verse 2 down to verse 13 is the parenthetical sentence. And in Greek it is one sentence. And then he picks up the thought again in verse 14. So this is sort of like what Paul does. So don't worry about when you go, huh? He, you'll do that a lot when you read this guy. Well, let me tell you what he's saying in these verses. We'll look at it. We'll consider it. We'll take communion. He's talking about unity, but he's saying unity costs. Unity costs. It's expensive. Number one, unity cost Paul his freedom. He became a prisoner. Number two, unity cost the angels their attention. I'll show it to you here in the text. Number three, unity will cost us our pride. But number four, unity costs Jesus Christ his life. You'll notice how he begins that unity cost him his freedom. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Remember where Paul was writing this from? Prison. He's in a Roman jail. Remember how he got there? He was in Jerusalem, right? And there was a riot that broke out because he said one word. One word, and I'll tell you what that word was in a minute if you don't already know. It's found in Acts 22. Don't look it up in advance. Follow me here. As he stood in Caesarea before Felix Festus and eventually King Agrippa and was tired of the, the legal back and forth, the ramblings and wranglings that were going on, he finally said, because he'd been there two years, I appeal my case to Caesar in Rome. Now, he could have gone free, but because he appealed his case to Caesar in Rome, Roman law, you go to Rome and you wait trial. That's what he's doing. He's in prison under house arrest. He has freedom to write and to preach and to speak to people who would gather, but he has a chain guard next to him, and he waits in Rome for his trial. He's a prisoner. He's a prisoner because of what he preached, the unity of Jew and Gentile. It got him into trouble with the Jews. That's why he's in Rome. Yet, Paul never considered himself a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Christ. He knew that he was here by the sovereign direction and will of God. Now, a lot of us would say, I can't believe you let this happen to me. I'm in jail. You know what he thought? Great, I've always wanted a prison ministry. <laughs> and he had the best one. Even the guards were getting saved, the Bible tells us. But here's a man who was in prison because he preached this message of unity, this coming together of Jew and Gentile under the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You see the word dispensation. It's a word oikonomia. We get the word economy from it. It can be translated um, dispensation as it is here. 
uh, can be translated stewardship, as some of your translations may render it. The idea is it was a stewardship given to a household manager. Paul is given a, a management, so to speak. Um, he's under new management. Paul re realized that he was living in a new era, a new testament, a new covenant. The old had gone. He knew what John 1.17 said. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he knew that God called him to sort of be the manager of this. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, he is called. He was commissioned that way in Acts chapter 9 when he was arrested literally from heaven by Jesus Christ on his way to put Christians to death. And he was sent out to the Gentiles. But it cost him. He says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. You know what he's saying. He's saying, there has never been an era where they understood what I am about to tell you. In the Old Testament, Jews thought it was for Jews. They didn't get the Gentile part. And there were pagan religions all over the world. Not one prophet had in his vision the church that comprised Jew and Gentile with no racial, social barriers whatsoever. That's something that he expounds upon in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, fellow heirs of the same body. Notice those words, same body. And partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I become a minister. He's a prisoner because he's been made a minister according to the gift, he calls it a gift, of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul used to be a separatist, didn't he? He was a Pharisee before he was saved. He did not like Christians. He especially didn't like Gentile people who tried to hone in on his Messiah. And you know how vitriolic he was against them. And you know what happened in the Damascus Road and how he was saved and how Ananias came to him because Jesus said, you go tell that character that he's going to appear before kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel. Then what happened to him? Well, he went away for three years, he said in Galatians. He went out to the desert somewhere. And when he came back, he understood in his mind, it was crystallized for him, the plan of God. God loves everybody, he said. Jew and Gentile. And he started preaching that. And he got him in trouble. He'd go into the synagogue first, didn't he? Because it was the gospel to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And when the Jews said, we don't want to hear of this, he'd go to the Greeks. And the Greeks and the Gentiles came to faith in Christ and it made the Jews in the synagogue angry. And then one day, he's in Jerusalem. Acts 22. And he's giving his testimony. He's telling the truth. This is what happened to me. I'm going down a road, and this bright light comes, and I get knocked on my back, and Jesus speaks to me. And after I say, what do you want me to do, Lord? He says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And the scripture says, they listened to him until they heard this word. And then they threw dirt in the air. They tore their clothes. They pulled their hair. They had a conniption fit, as my mom used to call it. And they said, away with this fellow. Such a one is not even worthy to live on the face of the earth. That's what got him into trouble because he was reaching out to the Gentiles. So he's in jail. By the way, 
Seven times, no less than seven times, Scripture records this man was in a prison. It's a lot of times to go to jail, isn't it? I was arrested once. I'm not going to go into detail or tell you what for. It didn't last long. But imagine seven times being sentenced and put in a prison. You know, it's almost that wherever Paul went, he'd first say, great town, could you show me where the prison is? I'm going to be spending the night, no doubt. (laughs) So this unity cost Paul his freedom. Number two, this unity cost the angels their attention. Now follow me, verse 8. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. To the intent, or we might say for the purpose, here's the reason, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, notice, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. And who are they? They are angels. That's who they are. At this point, we may wonder, uh, why did God keep such a cool thing a secret for so long? Two reasons, I believe. Number one, to give Israel an opportunity to fulfill her God-given role as a light to the Gentiles. And number two, to educate the angels. You might put it this way. The church is an angelic graduate course in the grace of God. Did you know that angels study us? They're very curious. They're very interested in us. They were there. They were there when a third of the angels fell with Satan and that rebellion became demons. They were there when man was created. They were there when man fell. They were there throughout the prophetic utterances in the Old Testament. They were there at the cross of Christ. They saw it all. And they're looking down, besides being helpers of our salvation. They study us. Because, you see, angels are not like God. They are not omniscient. They're learning. They're growing. As the revelation of God continues. Uh, turn with me, would you, could you, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read three verses that highlight what I just said. 1 Peter chapter 1. By the way, this is why we ask people to bring Bibles to the Bible study. Because it would be awfully awkward, wouldn't it, just to sit there without being able to read and have reference to it. 1 Peter 1, in verse 10, he's speaking of salvation. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Even those authors, even those prophets, They would write things down, and they would compare each other's writings, and even they didn't quite get or understand how all of this was going to be fulfilled in the future. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice, things which angels desire to look into. 
We must be a wonder to those angels in heaven as they study us. And they wonder, according to Paul back in Ephesians, they're marveling at the manifold wisdom of God. Oh, wow, that's so wise, Lord. Your plan would include the world, the wisdom of sending one perfect Messiah, God in human flesh, to atone for the sins of the world so that anybody, even though it's a Jewish Messiah, anybody, anywhere at any time could be saved. What wisdom. The angels desire to look into it. The angels marvel that God would send heaven's best for earth's worst. I, 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 um, I can't help but think that they scratch their head sometimes as they study us. In fact, I don't know that angels worry, but we would give them a lot of cause to worry especially since it is revealed in 1 Corinthians 6, get this. 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you know, Paul says, that we will judge the angels. I don't think the angels are really looking forward to that. <laughs> if they've studied us, they go, oh, come on, not them. <laughs> so they're very interested and notice, back in, in Ephesians, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. In other words, in the university of the universe, God is the teacher, the angels are the students, the subject is the manifold wisdom of God, and the illustration is the church, us. They look at it, they see it, they marvel at it. Ooh, wow. The manifold wisdom. By the way, the word manifold is variegated or many-colored. All of the different people, backgrounds, ethnicities, educations that come together in one body, it is a marvel. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, this unity cost Paul his freedom, cost the angels their attention. Number three, this unity will cost us our pride our pride. You know why? Because if all this is true, that means I've got to look at you and embrace you as my brother or sister, whether I like you particularly or not. And notice what Paul said in verse 8, to me, who am the least, less than the least of all the saints. He didn't say, to me, the important apostle who was once a great Jewish rabbi who studied under Gamaliel. He said, I'm less than the least of all the saints. And you go, oh, well, that's just He's being, it's false humility. I don't think Paul did that. I think Paul was truly overwhelmed with the goodness of God to him. Are you? You know, one of the secrets of being used by God is you walk around all day long going, I can't believe God uses me. Because when I read this, Paul saying he's less than the least of all the saints, I'd never have a right to go, God should use me. I'm a good catch. He's missing out. Ah, he knows our frame, and he remembers that we're but dust. Verse 11, according to the eternal purposes I just read, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask, notice this, therefore I ask, that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. It would seem that some in Ephesus were a little embarrassed by Paul. After all, he's their leader now, and he's in prison, and he has been in prison for a long time. 
He gets beaten up. He gets slandered. He gets pushed around. Not a lot of people like him, and he's our leader. And they were feeling a little embarrassed by him. Now, Paul has already been put out by the Jews. They already shunned him because of this message of unity. And he's telling them, don't you do it too. Don't you do it too. Because I, am Paul, am like this bridge, bringing Jew and Gentile together, showing that we have part in the same work. So don't be embarrassed because of my tribulation for you, or don't lose heart. For you, which is your glory? Jews didn't like to associate with Gentiles, and Gentiles didn't particularly like to associate with Jews. But now they're in the same church, the same group, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave and slave owner, embracing each other. You and I have to lose our pride to be a member of God's body. We do. We have to be willing to overlook differences and peculiarities. There's a lot of people in this group that are like you are, but there's a lot of people who aren't. Now, you have one choice. That is to find all the people who are just like you are and only hang out with them. And I will say your growth will be minimized if you do. The best thing is to embrace and enjoy the differences. John White wrote a book, and I'm borrowing a paragraph from it. He said, you will also discover that some Christians are stupid, ornery, tactless, stuffed shirts, prudes, hypocrites, and so on. Some will be bigoted advocates of totally unacceptable political positions, and others will slurp their soup or have bad breath. We shall come to the complex question of how you relate to them later on, he writes in his book. For the present, it's enough that you remember that God loves them even though you find it hard to. You must also be charitable enough to admit that there may be unattractive features in your own personality. You don't wear robes and sandals and halos yourself. He concludes in this paragraph. So the unity that Paul speaks about costs Paul his freedom, costs the angels their attention, will cost us our pride, and fourth, and this is where we take communion, this is where we bring it to this point, it costs Jesus Christ his own life. There's an allusion to that in verse 11 and 12. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. How did he do that? He accomplished it at the cross in Christ. Now think of it this way. Think of it. Whatever it may have cost to bring unity, it cost Paul is freedom, it costs angels or attention, costs us our pride. Whatever that cost is, that pales in comparison to what it costs Jesus. He gave his life, didn't he? So that we would be unified. He prayed for that in John 17. Father, I pray that they would be one even as we are one. That the world may know that you sent me. That the world may know that you sent me. The world looks at us preaching the gospel, and if they don't see us loving one another, our message has no value to them. It doesn't count to them. They want to see something real among us. Can you imagine walking into a church arguing over this style of music, that style of music? Should we have robes? Should we not have robes? What color of pew? No, that color of pew. 
Forward baptism, backward baptism, immersion sprinkling, scuba diving, whatever it might be. <laughs> Petty little arguments. God accomplished this in Christ. He died for our unity. By the way, the last meeting Paul ever had with this church's eldership is recorded in Acts 20. They weep together. And Paul says something to these leaders. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers that you shepherd the flock which he purchased with his own blood. With his own blood. It's God's church. Jesus paid for it with his own blood. Conclusion. Here's the conclusion. The church is important to God. Is it important to you? The church, according to the Bible, is the pillar and ground of all the truth. Jesus Christ came to build his church. He died so that there could be a church unified under his sacrifice. If it's that important to him, how dare we make it less important to us? There is a mistake I see among American Christians having traveled the world. It is our concept of a personal relationship with Christ. Oh, I believe in it. It has to be personalized. But what happens is American Christianity has become, we've OD'd on personal relationship with Christ almost to the exclusion of our need to meet with other people. We have become personalized, independent drifters in our own sea of whatever we feel and whatever we think, and I'll get around to it, and I'll go to church when I feel like it, and we're talking about something he purchased with his own blood. So church, and especially the Lord's table, can never be secondary because it wasn't to him. It wasn't to him. Remember, Jesus wrote a letter, didn't he, to this church some years later in Revelation. Remember the gist of it. You have, what, left your first love. Already they had sort of waned in that. I stood several years ago in front of the Taj Mahal in northern India. It's magnificent. It smells a bit, but it's magnificent. And I was astonished to read that the Taj Mahal wasn't a palace but a tomb that it was built by the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan for his beloved wife, who died at a young age. He decided this, this tomb would be the most magnificent tomb in the world. So her coffin was placed in the middle of a field by a river. Construction began around the casket. But this guy soon became so into the motion of building, the vision and passion of building, that he didn't care much about his dead wife anymore. He didn't mourn her passing very much. And one day, amidst all of the ruckus of building and tools and movements of stone, his leg ran into a wooden box. He didn't know what it was. He dusted off his leg, and he commanded that box be thrown out. And it was. It was his wife. Her casket. The building eclipsed the purpose that existed. 
Is there anything that is eclipsing your first love relationship with Christ and your love for his body, the church, the unity of the church? Could it be that even communion has just become a ritual as empty as the Taj Mahal? It could be that you've sort of lost your love for the church because you've lost your love for its owner, whose church it is.